0: Good morning and a warm welcome to this week's episode of the Special Focus with me Zahi Jadwit. Today we are doing something a little bit different. Today we are having a personality profile interview and it's none other than than Azharwadi. And if you don't already recognize the name, let me help you. Azharvadi is a humanitarian journalist and the found the co-founder of Salam Media and the Salam Foundation. So without further ado, let's welcome him to the show. Wa alaikum and welcome to the show.
1: Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. thank you so much for having me.
0: Indeed, it's a pleasure. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? And like what has inspired you through your life and stuff like that?
1: Well, it's been good. Alhamdulillah, I must thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the various bounties that he blessed me with. 36 years now uh, and going strong still. And uh, hopefully, inshallah, there's still many years left in us. And we hope that whatever remainder of our life there is, that Allah uh, gives us the ability to, to do what is pleasing to Him. Uh, there's mm. been many inspirations along the road. I think my parents have been very inspiring. Uh, I've learned so much from them. My mom, my dad, uh, growing up in the anti apartheid struggle uh, from from birth, literally. Uh, being mm-hmm. alongside them and then uh, you know, been quite in, involved as a, as a youngster uh, uh, in the, back in the days of the UDF. Uh, I think I was one of the younger people uh, but taking along with the, 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 the activists of the day. And then uh, experiencing democracy and growing up in a country that I really, really love. I think South Africa as a whole inspires me, continues to inspire me despite all of its challenges. And I think that comes from my travels around the world where I've seen the situation that other people are in. I think that South Africa still has uh, a wonderful future ahead and so much to offer. And uh, I think that, 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 that's a, that the people of South Africa uh, in general have been an inspiration for me that we can overcome all of the challenges that we face.
0: Mm. And now we'll get to your uh, humanitarian works just now. But your parents, in fact your father was um, a parliamentarian, How has that impacted on your life?
1: Well, uh, we've literally literally grown up uh, with uh, a father that's been involved in politics throughout, right? But in 1994, he went to Parliament. So Mm. at that time, I was just 11 years old. Uh, And it didn't really make sense to me what it actually meant at the beginning, but uh, what it translated into practically was that he would be absent from home um, for most of uh, his deployment period. So mm-hmm. On Monday mornings early, he would leave on a flight to Cape Town and stay in Cape Town until a Friday evening and then take the flight back home and then spend the weekend with us. Uh, and then the next Monday, he'd be gone again and then he'd come back on Friday. Uh, and uh, so we grew up with him doing this kind of traveling up and down. Uh, we missed him quite a bit. So, that, you know, but we also began to understand the role that he's playing and, and, and the importance of transition from apartheid into democracy and the parliament, especially of, under the leadership of Nelson Mandela. I think those were the, the glory years of, of South Africa uh, and then into Thabo Mbeki's years. And then it became somewhat a little bit more difficult, but by 2010, already it had moved into the Gauteng provincial legislature. Uh, it always meant that we had to keep our card as children, I suppose, because uh, while we don't want to transgress or you know commit any um, uh, felony in any way whatsoever, mm. but you always have this thing that if I do it, you know I may just end up in the front page of the paper saying the, the MP, the member of parliament's son or the NEC's son or daughter. As my sisters would have experienced. We, we just had that here at the back of our heads, and there's mm. so many, unfortunately, so many um, youngsters, uh, kids of uh, uh, politicians that have. Made those errors, mm. and uh, alongside destroying their own lives, they even gone uh, and want to destroy the lives of their, their parents and their political careers. So you always have to tread carefully uh, and make sure that you have all your you cliché way to say it, all your keys crossed and your eyes dotted, and everything is uh, over and above board uh, and and very transparent about it. Uh, uh, Now and then, we'd also feel the pressure of the lack of service delivery or people complaining constantly about uh, what's happening in South Africa, Uh, you know, there's a pothole in the road. Sometimes I get a message, why is this pothole not fixed up, and
0: Mm -hmm. I'm like, you
1: know what, I really can't do anything about the pothole, but we can together report it to the council whose responsibility is to fix up, you know, local potholes. So, those kinds of pressures were there, but I must say, um it has been a, a very uh, unique life perhaps. Not many people have the opportunity to be the children of uh, people who are in parliament.
0: Mm, indeed. And you refer to the days of Nelson Mandela in government. You refer to them as the glory days. So what then do you make of the current status quo in South Africa right now?
1: There's a lot of confusion uh, in the political scene. We've had uh, eight or nine or whatever years of the Zuma Administration that I think has really caused a lot, a lot of chaos. I'm all for a uh, you know looking at different people getting contracts in different companies in different countries, uh, winning business in in South Africa, looking to alternatives besides uh, the West uh, and what we traditionally our business partners in, in Europe and in America, um, and, and, and looking at alternatives, like the Chinese alternatives or the Russian alternatives, but without corruption. And I think that there has now become characteristic, unfortunately, of what South Africa is experiencing right now. We, we That level of corruption, looting, and stealing has plagued every level of government. And there are very few, uh, particularly up until the Zuma era, uh, that were untainted. In, in all of that, and they have to really fight back hard to try and win back the state. Uh, the state capture is not just about Kupta's or one or two companies, or ESCOM. it filters right throughout every single municipality, uh, you know, it, it's, it's painful to see sometimes as you go through the different small towns of our country, uh, and even in the larger cities, the type of deterioration that they have experienced, you know, uh, yeah. where uh, state owned resources have been looted to an extent that we, even the infrastructure that has been there cannot be maintained, and new developments for people that have been uh, deprived in the past cannot go forward, and we cannot lift our society in general out of poverty because of the amount of looting. So I believe that there is enough money in our country. This I, this um, notion of we don't have the funds, we don't have the money is a complete fallacy. There is enough money. But because of corruption, everything is three times or four times or five times the price uh, and money is uh, going all over the place. And in actual fact, uh, that is where we are losing out right now.
0: Now, I'm cu- curious to go back to the beginning, to the beginning of your journalism career. And I want to know what brought you into the field of journalism and how what eventually led to the birth of Salaam Media. I know you are one of the co- co-founders of the organization.
1: Well, I think it goes right back into my schooling career. Uh, I was very excited about speech contests and public speaking and debating. And uh, even in school, uh, in high school, we ran a small little put up speakers in the middle of the assembly and uh, during breaks, we would get a mic and interview people and run a small little kind of internal radio station there. So perhaps those were the, uh, the, the, that was perhaps the birth of the idea or the question of journalism. But uh, as I went out of school, I had the desire to do law and then eventually sat down and decided and talked about it with different people, Uh, my parents were involved and lots of other people. And then we settled on journalism uh, and, and let's give it a try and see where it all started. Uh, I then started off at uh, Radio Islam in Indonesia as a news reader, and very soon I moved on to the position of head of news at Radio Islam, and I must say it was a very exciting and a very meaningful period. Uh, Along with my formal studies, I had a mentor in the form of Ismail Variava, who I'm still extremely grateful for, and uh, I think he's a wonderful, wonderful human being, Um, and uh, he allowed us to access many courses and many uh you know training facilities uh that allowed us to uh, basically fine-tune our journalistic skills because what you learn in, in university and, and practical journalism sometimes is very different you know, and yeah. studying media studies and politics is not really studying journalism and, and how to craft or how to prepare and how to uh, put forward a story so i'm very thankful to him for all of that Uh, And then, uh, thereafter, I left Radio Islam and joined CII, Channel Islam International, for a period of time, about, uh, I think it was about six or seven years there, from 2009 up until uh, 2016. Uh, And there again, uh, I filled in the position of head of news, uh, and then moved on to the uh, projects department, where we started uh, some of the humanitarian work under CII projects. Uh, uh, thereafter, I decided to, instead of having it in separate compartments, uh, yeah. being a journalist on one end and then doing humanitarian work separately on the other, yeah. uh, that's where the idea sprung forward of humanitarian journalism. When looking some, at some of the ideas from the United States, uh, there was an organization called Riot News. Uh, they have since been bought out, I think, by the Huffington Post, um, but uh, the, the, the idea of actually getting involved in the story that you're covering. So you're not just going to a, uh, an earthquake area or a droughted area or a uh, you know, civil war or any place for that matter and covering the news per se. You do that, but the focus of that news story will be from a humanitarian or a human perspective and thereafter you try and follow it up with some kind of humanitarian effort to help uh, solve the problem of, or, or, or eliminate the challenges that people are facing. Um, in doing so, you are actually becoming part of the story. And for us, that redefined the, um, the definition of journalism, because journalists are supposed to remain aloof, and they're supposed to stay out of the story and be unbiased. But I think it's one of the biggest lies, settled by journalists themselves, to perhaps make themselves feel a little bit more comfortable, or to um, make us all in the public believe that what they are actually doing is an unbiased. So every single person comes with their own background and their own uh, context to a, a reference point towards a particular story, whatever the story may be. Even a simple crime story um, uh, comes with a lot of context if the person writes it. And and so nobody is unbiased, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, and therefore I think that perhaps even better, and more more transparent, if we say this is our stance. And, uh, and, and these are the people that we are supporting on the ground and we're going to be helping them. And these are their stories and this is the journalism that we're putting out. And that stance or that bias is always in favor of those who are oppressed. Uh, that's our principle, irrespective of who or where or what. It doesn't matter upon religion or ethnicity or background or race or gender. If any person is oppressed, then you probably find an Islam media article or a Islam media write-up or a picture or something that is in favour of those who are oppressed.
0: And do you think that the media space is free, especially in South Africa, and is the media doing well in reflecting what is the actual reality on the ground?
1: Let us uh, just repeat that question. Sorry, I didn't get the first part.
0: Do you think that the media space in South Africa is free and are the media doing well in reflecting the actual situation on the ground?
1: At face value, yes, I do believe we have one of the most uh, free media spaces uh, in the world. We are protected by a wonderful constitution uh, and still uh, the rule of law uh, in terms of our courts. And, uh, and, uh, but... At the same time, uh, uh, in recent days, we've seen that the media has come under severe pressure from political parties, from uh, politicians. Uh, They've made their life hell. Uh, But Mm. if you look at it one step uh, deeper, uh, it may not be as free as you think it is. Uh, The media is free to operate, but at the end of the day, uh, the journalist is, is handled or controlled by an editor, and the editor is handled and controlled by a board of directors or a group of uh, company owners, uh, and uh, they perhaps are even controlled or have uh, you know shareholders that are involved with all of that. So there's a lot of people that form a chain of command, a chain of instruction, and all of those ideas and perceptions determine ultimately what is the final product in the end. Uh, and and so you may say that um, while it, it is a free media in terms of political understanding, uh, no person or no journalist is free to just write as they simply please. Uh, if you go to some of the media institutions and you want to do a particular story on a particular country, uh, and uh, you, you may find that the editor will tell you, unfortunately, that's not our editorial policy. Uh, and for me, That's an infringement of of, of freedom of speech. That's an infringement or or, or a uh, dilution of, uh, uh, what we say, uh, media freedom. Because uh, the journalist is not allowed to write as and what they feel. I'll give you a practical example. Uh, In 2009, it traveled with a group of people to uh, the Gaza Strip uh, to cover the humanitarian issues. Uh, that uh, they are uh, to cover the uh, humanitarian issues and the news after the, the, the war had just broken out in between. Uh, Israel had entered into the Gaza Strip and there was mass killing and whatever. But it was about a week after the war had stopped and we entered into the Gaza Strip. One of the journalists along with us filed a story uh, and we, I mean, we were all present and the story was about the situation being calmed down now. Uh, traffic was moving again on the roads. And uh, there were uh, there was an armed policeman, like we have, you know, metro police, JMPD. Mm. Uh, they have a gun on them, and they stand in there and they conduct in traffic. Uh, and and that's exactly what the person was doing, conducting traffic. And in the report, it was put forward as a... Tra- uh, there, there's no sign of any soldiers or any violence, and uh, traffic is moving normally, and uh, traffic is being conducted by a police person. And the editor wrote, uh, sent a message back that that sentence needs to be changed. You need to say an armed militant is standing in the streets of Gaza conducting and, and, and directing traffic. So you can see that there is a specific way and an angle that somebody in the new chain of news command would want uh, that story to be put forward. And that's why I would say that there's there's no real... Freedom of, of expression and freedom of media uh, is, uh, you know, is commonly portrayed um, in, in mainstream uh, academics and, and, and universities and colleges.
0: And how do you think that the media is coping in the battle against fake news, and especially with people tweeting about just at their own free will, and Twitter being a main source of information for many people? So how do you think?
1: How do you fake think? News, fake news is not something new. Fake news and disinformation has been used uh, since the, you know, the advent of, of media as a whole, uh, and even perhaps prior to that. The 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 pushing and peddling of uh, information for a specific reason and agenda, uh, and using lies in between all of that, is is uh, a tool of war. It's been used in World War Two. It's been used prior to that to to get the message, to get people agitated about a specific thing, uh, and, and and fake news is then peddled. Social media has now compounded that. It has increased the ability and the speed at which news in general and fake news would be able to reach a wider audience. In the same way, the same tools. Social media, the current, uh, the old media platforms, whether it's radio, whether it's print, whether it's uh, uh, television, they have also increased their capabilities and abilities to, to, to reach people with the actual news, with mm. the real news, with the truth. So one balances the other. Uh, it's just the platforms and the technology that's changing, but the uh, but the content, be it true news or fake news, has been there, in my opinion. For, for, for a very, very long time. Uh, and so I don't think that uh, fake news is something new. It's just that we have new platforms that allow news to spread faster, uh, and, and that's the, that's where the actual danger is. But at the same time, we have the same platforms that can counter that. And for me, it's about developing those types of news agencies and journalists who are brave enough and who are determined enough, uh, and perhaps even crazy enough, because... Uh, you've got to really go out there to find the
0: truth and then put it forward. Mm. And now, as you've mentioned earlier, obviously a major part of your career in humanitarian journal- journalism is going right there to the war-torn countries and on the ground. So what can you relate from those experiences? I mean, you've been to Gaza, you've gone to meet Rohingya people. So what can you relate from these experiences?
1: I think these experiences are, first of all, life changing for myself. Every time you go to one of these places, you see and you meet people that have been traumatized, that have been brutalized, that have, you know, saw the real rough end of the world. And you want to screen their stories out to everybody. Uh, and you want to tell the world about the injustices that people are facing, and you just want to have it corrected. So I think the first impact. And the first thing that I can say is that it, it, it changes me every time. It, 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 every time you go to these countries, it become, you become more determined to want to get uh, the other side of the story out uh, and let people know about it. So uh, I, th- that, that's the one thing. I mean, for example, I met an old lady in the Rohingya camps mm. uh, as they were still you know, streaming in, uh, in 2017 across the border. Uh, she must have been 70 years old or so and told us the story of how she witnessed uh, people being uh, lit and put on fire mm. from their toes upwards. You know, they 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 hang them from the roofs, hanging downwards, and then put people alight from the bottom. How babies were flung into the embers and fires of their own mothers, and how women were, were were raped and tortured, and people killed and shot. So all of those incidents make you know you want the world to know about it. Sometimes if it's in the interest of certain countries and mainstream media picks it up. If it's not in the interest of those countries, those same media institutions will, will close an eye to what's going on, um, will, will silence the issue, and that's the struggle that we have, uh, to tell those stories when nobody else wants to tell them. Uh, when it's in the interest of politicians and, uh, and, and, and uh, huge companies and, and money, uh, then those stories make the light of day and they are silenced in other areas. And when it's not in the interests of those uh, same companies, uh, then, then they will be, they, it doesn't get out at all. So that's our challenge, to be able to, to become that voice, irrespective. Uh, and uh, when you are independent, without any uh, funding from an outside uh, institution, where you have to find your own money, where you, have to, where you don't have uh, the support of, you know, the, of, of, of theological bodies here in South Africa, yeah. uh, you've got to struggle out there and make it happen to remain independent and to be able to be critical, irrespective. Otherwise, you, you, many of the media institutions buckle uh, because of economic pressures. They take money from different funders and then you become the tool of this funder and perhaps even
0: the perpetrator uh, of some of the injustices that are happening. And uh, of course those ones are the the stories of war and etc. But coming local, the local projects that you've embarked on, I mean the 3000 kilometer ride for SA Education was a big one. Tell us about that one.
1: You see, uh, there's another popular saying that the charity starts at oh, home. We, we, we can't begin to only focus on the issues of other people while ignoring the plight of ordinary South Africans right here. We may not be in a conflict zone uh, where, you know, war is raging and there's tanks on the road and soldiers and all of that, but we have another battle, and it's the battle to end poverty, unemployment, social injustice, inequality, racism, all of that needs to come to an end in South Africa. And mm. we need to put our, uh, all of us, our shoulder to the wheel and begin to work towards eradicating that. Uh, it's in the interest of everybody because the wider the poverty gap becomes, the wider the inequality, uh, eventually there'll be nothing left for the poor to eat but the rich, you know. And uh, you have a very, very, very volatile situation that can be taken over by outside forces with different agendas and it can then result in a very catastrophic situation for South Africa. So we need to address inequality. We need to address unemployment. We need to address corruption. And for us, one of the sustainable ways of doing that is through education. And that's why we have this. It's not just the 3,000 kilometers that we did in 2017, but 2018, 2019, and 2020, we plan to do something similar, inshallah. Uh, But we want to highlight the need for education and, and, and supporting our youngsters, particularly in the lower grades. There's people that are working in the uh, tertiary sector and that are offering bursaries and that's great and well done to them, alhamdulillah. But what about that child who's going through grade one and grade two and grade three who doesn't have a pencil? What's the chances mm. of them passing in the end of matric? So we worry about the matric results every year and we, we check the percentage compared to last year. But what effort has been made to ensure that the children get to matric in the first place and they have that kind of support? And we can't solve every problem. We can't make sure that that kid receives even one child. It's difficult for us to see one child have everything from grade one right up until matric. But we can give some children something. That little pencil may be just enough for them to be able to complete their work. That print, that stick, that pair of shoes. Um, you know, or the school bag, whatever it is, it will make a difference in their child's life. It will make the economic burden on the necks of their parents a little bit lighter, and it will enable them to go a little bit forward. And deep inside their heart, there is, I know, their sense of gratitude um, that, you know, somebody still cares for me out there. Uh, and, and I think that was the powerful message that came from our deliveries this year to some of the schools. The principal said, you know, the good start it was that you don't understand these children, many of them come from broken homes, uh, abusive homes, uh, single-parent uh, homes or homes run by their grandparents because parents have, have fallen ill and uh, through HIV AIDS and have passed away. Yeah. Uh, and many are orphans. And there's just no sense of care, of love, of somebody giving them hope. And this is what you bring into them. Love, hope and care. And that's the hashtag that we've been using quite often now. Love, yeah. hope and care. Because this is the simple thing that you put into this child's life. That little inspiration may be even more important than the actual pair of shoes or stationery, whatever you're giving to them.
0: And you've been featured in the 100 Young Mandela's feature on News 24. So how do you feel about that?
1: humbling experience. Uh, one of my colleagues nominated me put my name forward and uh, we just forgot about it and then I eventually got a call to say hey look you, you've been nominated here yeah. uh, and we do, I mean I do appreciate the acknowledgement and like any human being uh, I think it's just natural that we say uh, thanks to those who have acknowledged us uh, and it makes you feel a little bit nice inside. But I think the work is what really needs to uh, be put forward. Besides us as individuals and accolades that we get or that we don't get or that, you know, it, it, it really needs to be the work that, that, that shines out in front. And uh, I think uh, it, it, it motivates us a little bit to say, go forward. People have seen the good work that's been done. But ultimately, you know, what you're looking for is that it needs to be accepted in the, in the, after and the year after. Uh, this world we are all, we all think we are riding very fast horses and we are all moving at a very strong speed mm. But we make, uh, uh, reach the other side and realize that what we are actually sitting on and as uh, the dust settles down And we realize that, uh, you know, actually we are riding on, a, on an old donkey and you never really got very far mm. uh, so, so hopefully Allah accepts what's done, whether we, they call us young Mandela's or not, doesn't matter But ultimately what's in the akhir is important
0: Mm. And what is your message to the listeners today?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, the message is that all of us have the capacity and capability to do something. One body, or one Salam Media or one team here at our office is not going to solve the problem. One organization, one humanitarian group is not going to solve the, the, the problem. One government, one department, one president is not going to do it. Mm. All of us need to do to, to, to our little bit. Uh, You know, it it starts with that paper that you want to throw out of the window while driving. Uh, That litter that's there. Picking up a bottle. Seeing what's outside your own yard. Not messing and not dirty in that little space that you have. Looking after and appreciating the things that are in your own life. Uh, And that's what brings barkat, you know, blessing. Uh, If we don't do that, then our little place deteriorates. The mess and the muck spreads to the next house and to the next and the next and then our entire neighborhood is a, is a dump and before you know it our city is a dump and before you know it uh, that negativity just filters through everywhere and nobody cares about them and then we find ourselves in the situation that we are in right now that's where it starts pick up that little paper on the floor it won't kill you it won't make a difference to your life it won't harm you it won't benefit you at all but in the bigger scheme of things if you all pick up that one paper we'll have a society that's a lot more beautiful and a lot more... Beautiful. So each person has that capacity with themselves. Uh, and uh, a, 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 a great charity, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi has told us it, even removing that little rock from the pathway, even that is a siddhaqah and a charity and, and giving back to humanity. So do that a little bit at least. And I think if you all, and unless, just get to that point, you'll have a much better world that you can live in.
0: Indeed. And it's difficult to wrap up with such an inspiring and interesting conversation. But lastly, what are your future goals?
1: Well, I'd like to see uh, Salam Media and Salam Foundation expand and grow. I'd like to have many more people that uh, can work and um, you know, be part of our team. So that's one of our immediate goals. We're trying very hard. We need the support of the community and people out there constantly uh, to be able to do that so uh, hopefully we can see this organization grow and i think uh, on a, on, a, on a larger scale is to be able to uh, one of my goals would be to see a much much better south africa and much better africa and a and a and a beautiful world out there where people can just live as people in their their diversities and their differences and whatever else it may be utopian and dreamlike and you know uh, something that uh, I may never ever we may never ever see it. but I I want to work towards that because uh, the smiles of people uh, I think that is uh, you know the, the ultimate gift that we can we can receive just to see people happy
0: and let me just squeeze this in dare I squeeze it in what do you think of independent podcasters like myself
1: I think uh, independent broadcasters uh, are are very important. They need it. They they balance out a lot of what's happening in society. If you have a state broadcaster, you expect the state's message to go out. Uh, If you have um, uh, private broadcasters, uh, you expect the the advertiser's message to go out or the the, the business message to go out. Uh, But if you truly have independent broadcasters, we mm-hmm. expect the people's message
0: to go out. And, uh, and and that's why I say they're very, very, very important. Okay. Wadi, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. JazakAllah khairan. Asalaamu alaykum. Asalaamu Indeed, that was Wadi and he's the founder of Salam Media and the Salam Foundation. And I wish him all the best in his future endeavors. It's really good stuff, which they are doing. And now... um. Much thanks goes out to you for driving my passion of podcasting through your continued support and listenership. Do send your comments and suggestions to 78 That's 78 Let's get this spread far and wide. And you can tag me on Twitter at Zahid Jadwit. Z-A-H-I-D-J-A-D-W-A-T. Thank you for listening.